Okay. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to this special event. I have the pleasure of working in some form or fashion with the people on stage. And I believe that it is important for more people to understand what motivates healthcare professionals in the largest sense of the, of the word. Uh, I'm not only talking about clinician, clinicians, but anyone who is interested in making healthcare better, more affordable, more accessible for healthcare professionals, for the general public, for employers, for employees. My own origin story in healthcare began when I was a student and I was faced with surprise medical bills that caught me off guard. I realized then the importance of understanding healthcare costs and how they affect patients and myself. Now, I had come, this was in 2012, I had come from a universal healthcare plan country, a single-payer country, Luxembourg, in Europe, and I had just realized my American dream, and I decided to start that as a student in Oxford, Ohio. And I had my student health insurance and I had a student health center and one day I had some back pain and I decided to go there. They couldn't help me very much and they sent me off to the only option in town, the local hospital. I walked in with good faith thinking it would work like in Luxembourg where I would walk out with just, you know, having been helped. Uh, that was not the case. I walked out with a $3,000 bill and I was shocked because that was something new to me. Especially because when I walked in, nobody could tell me that that would be the case. And uh, So I decided to spend a good amount of my career indirectly to do something about this. But I had no idea how. And it is because of the people on stage specifically Dr. Roger Mochigemba, who was my first uh, point of touch, someone who introduced me to uh, a world of a, a different healthcare delivery model in the United States. And uh, the rest, you know, was just a logical sequence of me meeting amazing people, everyone on stage, David Duro, Kelly Pickett, Harlan Pickett, Michelle Di Stefano, people who really care and in their own careers make a difference. And what I noticed is that what's really most powerful is to equip people with information so that they can participate in the, in the conversation and also by making choices with their dollars in how they want to buy and pay for health care and advertise for health care and help, help people have access to health care in different ways. Um, as we hear from our speakers today, I hope you'll gain a deeper understanding of the passion and the dedication that drives healthcare professionals to do what they do and how they work to help patients navigate healthcare costs. At the end of the event, 
please feel free to address any questions you may have to the speakers. Um, there is a way for you to raise your hand and come on stage. And I know that all of our panelists here are more than happy to answer any questions you may have. I definitely want to take a moment to thank you all for your time and attention. Uh, you have so many options to be somewhere and you choose to spend your time with us right now. And I'm very grateful for that. Let's see if we can get more people into the room. And we do that by sharing it. One of the easiest ways to do that is if you look in the top right corner, you'll see three dots. And if you click those three dots, and then you can go to event details. And then you scroll down a little bit, you'll see share. And with that, you can share the event to your own feed. You can also, if you think this is something that I want a specific person to be in, you can send it as a message directly to someone. Um, this is the first speech of a series called the Shanks Healthcare Speaker Series, and the next one will be on Thursday at 1 p.m. Central Time. But for now, we're going to get started and we'll listen to the story of how Dr. Roger Mochigamba got started in healthcare. And you'll find that he has a very unique way of how he sees uh, healthcare and, uh, and how it should be delivered. So, Dr. Roger, the virtual floor is yours. Oh, thank you, Shankar. Well, uh, thank you for getting this group together and uh, letting us all share our stories. Uh, I'm looking forward to hearing everybody else's story as well. But um, actually, to to talk about how I got started in healthcare, um, I, I'd really kind of like to go back a little bit further to give some more background to a couple of big events early on in my life that changed me to, to be able to have the confidence to, to um, strive for such a high goal. Um, because um, when, when I was a child, um, I, I came from a, a small family, a poor family. Uh, my ancestors uh, came over from um, the old world, what was Poland, in 1854 and settled the first Polish colony in America. And that was in Texas. And so I say that because they were peasants there. And when they came over to Texas, uh, there was no industry in that year and in that time. So they were farmers and poor people just scratching out to, to, to make a living, you know, in the, in the, in the land. So I, I say that because then in my own family, I had no, no ancestors that were educated or went to college. No, nobody in my family, aunts, uncles, anybody, um, had a college degree. So, and my dad was an alcoholic. Um, so I didn't have that that influence there to to pull me into a profession or anything successful like that. So, after high school, I left 
um, made a, I mean, I moved from Texas out to California and I started working over there with living with a friend and working. And, and there, one of the things that changed my life was I, I, I got involved with a, a multi-level marketing company and, and I, they had this program of self-improvement and I, I read some books and one of the books I read was the possible dream. Another one was how to win friends and influence people. And, and I mentioned that as important because it, it, it changed my life in a way that it helped me to believe that I could achieve whatever I set my, my mind to. Okay. Now that business didn't work out, uh, but, but it did change me. And then um, after a few years, I, I came home, worked for a little bit, and then I went and I served a mission for my church for a couple of years. And during that time, I was around other young people my age that were going to college. And I, I saw what they were doing and I thought, you know what? You can do that too if you want. You should go to college. So I, I told myself that I was going to do that. And so that was the other big thing. I I was around the right people, people that were that were moving, going places, and uh, positive, and, and had goals. So, so the kind of people that we associate with is really important. Um, so then, with that previous notion in my mind that I could achieve whatever I set my mind to do, um, and then go to college, even though I, when I was in high school, I was not college bound. It didn't have the, the grades and, and that, that track in college to get me, I mean, in high school to get me to college. I didn't let that stop me. I applied to Texas A&M and, and went there and really, really applied myself and graduated with honors. And, uh, so, so then I decided that I, um, you know, to be the best I could be, I wanted to set my sights really high, as high as I could. And back in, in that day and age, uh, being the kid that I was, to me, one of the, the highest goals I could achieve as far as a, per, a career or profession was to be a doctor. So that's where I set my, my sights. And uh, so that's how I got started in healthcare, actually. And then... Um, Though my, my career path in healthcare was still influenced by those decisions. Um, you know, first of all, I wasn't afraid to drift out of the status quo. And through, with that notion, I, I helped start, I tried to start my own um, startup. And due to circumstances beyond my control, I had to shut it down. But that opened the door for me to become the first president of the Teladoc Physicians Association, which was a wonderful ride for nine years while we established the foundation of that. And then I helped start another nationwide telemedicine company after that, um, that, that launched um, successfully. I was that medical director for several years. And then that led me to yet another out-of-the-box healthcare solution, which I'm so excited about now, and that's direct primary care. So I don't want to talk too long, but that's kind of in a, from a high-level view, 
how I got into healthcare and what has driven me to the kind of healthcare I believe that uh, we, we does the most for people. It, it provides affordable access to healthcare. So it's a wonderful way to practice medicine. That's kind of my journey from a high level. Yeah, Dr. Roger, um, I do want you to take two or three minutes and talk about direct primary care because it matters to me that people know that there is such a thing. So in, how would you explain direct primary care and why does it matter for individuals and also companies? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm happy to say that. I love talking about this because um, it's such a refreshing way to practice healthcare. You know, insurance premiums are really high and deductibles are really high. And so um, the government tried to mandate, you know, healthcare for everybody. But what they were really mandating a few years ago was health insurance. But health insurance is definitely not healthcare. Um, health insurance is very expensive, and a lot of people don't have access, don't have affordable access to health care. So in direct primary care, we kind of kind of go back to the old model where it's directly between the doctor and the patient. In our direct primary care model, a patient pays a small monthly fee to the clinic, and then they have unlimited access to the doctor through office visits, texts, phone calls, uh, video visits, and that kind of thing. And then for employers, um, employers actually are the ones that pay for the majority of healthcare in this country. So employers can use direct primary care as well. They can buy the memberships for their employees and then give them access to a doctor not health insurance. So direct primary care is not health insurance, it's direct access to a doctor. Um, so then if that higher level need needs to be covered, well then that's that's where we bring in the insurance experts to to cover that higher level of need. Well, what a what a beautiful transition. Thank you to our next speaker. Uh, thank you, Dr. Roger, for explaining this to us. Um, I'm so grateful you have uh, introduced me to this world of DPC and free market uh, medical spirit. Uh, you have asked me to co-lead the Free Market Medical Association here in San Antonio. And by doing so, I have learned so much. So, um I want to go on to our next speaker. I want uh, Harlan Pickett to uh, get ready to share his story. Harlan Pickett is uh, an amazing man who cares about relationships, who cares about making the right decisions for his clients. And he is also a very uh, one of the fewer uh, health insurance brokers that I know who embrace also things like DPC to make the best choice for for everyone. So uh, Harlan, would you tell us how you got started in your career? And um, yeah, I know you are a great speaker, or talk on radio very often, so I have no doubt that you will uh, tell us uh, how you got started in a very entertaining way. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, thank you so very much, Shankar. It is an honor to be asked to be part of this incredible board of speakers, and I, I certainly appreciate the invitation and the opportunity. Uh, it, it's so interesting, you know, listening to Dr. Roger go through his story, and of course, then he talks about DPC, and then the correlation that people uh, in this country believe is is inherent to the system, and that is that you have to have health insurance to actually get health care. And I certainly was one of those people for a number of years. Uh, whenever I got into this industry uh, over 15 years ago now, it was uh, directly because I felt people needed to have health insurance. I, I just didn't understand the difference. Uh, so much so because I grew up in a, in a corporate world as far as my work life. Uh, for 19 years, I was in corporate America. Uh, my father was in corporate America for 38 years. Uh, my mom was for a number of years, too. So we always had group insurance. You know, we always had something there that we just didn't understand what, I guess you can say, the rest of the world did as far as, or at least the rest of our country, did for health insurance and access to health care. So whenever the uh, corporate America decided they didn't know, they did not need my services anymore, and I was uh, I got a severance package, uh, for about a year, we were in great shape because we had, uh, part of my severance package was that we got to continue on our health plan at a very reasonable rate. Uh, as many folks listening probably know, once that part ends, you now have the option for COBRA. And, you know, COBRA should just stand for exactly the kind of snake that it is because it will strike you and it will strike fear into your heart as you see the amount that you'd have to pay for that. And once again, you're not necessarily getting access to health care. You're just getting health insurance. So as I went through that process, I said, OK, for the first time ever, I'm actually going to have to shop for health insurance. Um, I had no intentions ever of being in this industry. So I went out and started shopping, talked to a few insurance brokers, and they were telling me, now, we're talking about a long time ago, folks, they were telling me it's going to be $800 a month for my family of four to have health insurance. I just absolutely did not believe a word they were saying. I said, these people, these, these insurance people are nothing but liars and cheats, and there's no way it could possibly be $800 a month for insurance for my family of four. You know, we'd never paid more than, you know, $100, maybe $150 for our family. Once again, I didn't understand the concept of group insurance versus individual insurance. And so I decided I was going to do something about it. I studied for two weeks, took an insurance exam, and decided I was going to sell myself insurance. And that's exactly what I did. I found out real quick, insurance for individuals cost about $800 a month for a family of four. So it was, it was quite the eye-opener for me to find out that, yeah, they weren't pulling my leg. These people actually were showing me what the true cost was. And it became kind of a mission at that time for me then to help people in my situation, help small business owners, which is what I had become. My wife and I started a catering business uh, once uh, I was laid off. She was already doing it some uh, herself. And then I just stepped right into that role and we doubled our business. But when it came time to have to get insurance, it all of a sudden was going to cut into our profits and cut into our budget in a way that we certainly these these things and you see all the ways that this can that this can affect you and your family and it was it was very disturbing to us uh, that people were so blinded by this uh, it it was a big roadblock 
for people to become entrepreneurs, for people to start their own business. And so as I, as I went kind of on my mission, it truly was a mission to provide health insurance. I didn't know a better way. I didn't know that health insurance didn't mean healthcare at that time. I didn't know any better. And certainly the, the folks that trained me in this industry were not in, uh, did not in any way, shape, or form want to, want to teach me anything else. Uh, the whole purpose, of course, when you're working for the BUCAs is to sell as much insurance as you possibly can. Uh, it was years of having clients have problems, uh, accessibility issues, uh, denials of claims uh, for just no reason whatsoever. Uh, the waiting on, of course, the terrible HMOs, the waiting for approvals for things, the denials of services, just multiple different issues that, hey, sometimes I'm a slow learner, okay, folks, that the light bulb goes off and it says, there's got to be a better way. And part of that was beginning to meet folks like Shane Carr, uh, like Dr. Roger, Whenever I met these guys a few years ago and began and learned a little bit about DPC and then started learning more about DPC, I realized that there were other folks out there that were really looking to give true access to healthcare. I began to understand the difference between insurance and the difference between healthcare and accessibility to healthcare. I also became uh, more a student of my industry and learning. Uh, the, the ins and outs of what's going on and how the, the numbers prove out that having insurance does not mean that you have access. And in fact, having insurance many times means you do not have access because of high deductibles. You're sitting in a situation where you're scared to go to the doctor. And that if you get in a situation where you absolutely have to, you find out that you cannot afford the bills. And um, you know most of the folks on here probably know that the, still the number one cause of bankruptcy is medical bills. And the majority of the people that were in that situation actually had health insurance. So it, it certainly doesn't prevent you from falling down that, that rabbit hole, as it were, of debt when you cannot find and cannot get that access. Uh, my, my transition then, you know, I won't say came full circle, but it, it became to the point where there's still got to be access, but there's, there's, there's folks that need to have something to make sure that that what if uh, direct primary care is a wonderful, wonderful option for folks. Uh, there's also clinics, uh, concierge, some folks go that route. There's there's even different clinics like uh, I know Kaiser has some across the country in the Houston area. Uh, you have Kelsey Seabold. You have some of these uh, that are, that are almost self-contained little worlds of do different doctors you can go to. And there are some folks that left to stay in to those, those type facilities. And we even had some way back whenever I was in corporate America, uh, we, we were part of some groups like that. There's nothing wrong with that. But what it doesn't give you is choice. Now you don't get to go to the places where you really want to go. Maybe you don't get to go to MD Anderson now, if you have cancer, and, and that's the place you want to go. And, and in fact, if you are on an Affordable Care Act in the state of Texas right now, you will not go to MD Anderson and have your services uh, pro provided there because they do not accept a single Affordable Care Act plan from the state of Texas at MD Anderson. So you would have to find somewhere else to go and have your treatment if you were in that situation. Clearly, that is not access to health care, no matter that you have that health plan. So when you look at all those things, and I, and I saw this over and over with clients, 
I decided it was time to do something else. And that was, I decided to start Eagle Care Health Solutions and start building actual health solutions that gave people true accessibility to health care. Uh, we work uh, with health share. We work with direct primary care. Uh, we do a lot of virtual. Uh, we have access to medications. We do all of these things, but the primary goal in everything we do is accessibility and affordability and access to health care. And that is the whole mission. Uh, and it is so interesting to me that my mission to begin with back whenever I, I had to search for insurance for myself, was find something I could afford, not even knowing that my same mission years later was to find something that other people could afford, but not a health insurance product, an actual product that allows them access to true health care. So, you know, Shane Carr, over my years, the big thing that I have learned is truly exactly what Dr. Rogers said, and that is health insurance does not equal healthcare. Thank you, Harlan. Thank you so much. Uh, what an amazing story. And definitely stay here because as a reminder, you all get to ask questions when all the speakers have had a chance to talk. And I think it's, it's kind of rare that we have both the physician and the health insurance expert represented in the same room. And that should make for some good conversation and questions. And uh, I will say, let's spread the love and try to get some more people in because this is very important information. Let's go to the top right corner, click the three dots and share this room with your network. Um, that's just going to make a big impact and you don't know how many of your friends and business colleagues need this information right now because it's pretty tough for some people out there. Uh, Michelle, I'm going to bring you up next, um, so get ready. Uh, but before I do that, I just want to recognize the power of these uh, audio rooms and encourage all of you to host some of them yourselves. Uh, I took a quick gander at the audience and I could tell we have, of course, the United States represented Uh, we also have the UK here in this room with Joy. We have people from India, Bangladesh, Pakistan. Um, and I, I think that's just very powerful. And I want to thank you all for your time again to be here. Um, Michelle is someone who has over 30 years of experience as a healthcare leader. Uh, including uh, the position of the uh, chief nursing officer. And she has seen a side of healthcare um, that many of you may not be aware of, and that is the one from the internal uh, kind of perspective, the way healthcare staff experiences the situation and the challenges they also um, have to face. I know personally, I speak to so many uh, doctors, physicians, nurses, therapists, they get burned out in this system that is really not set up to take care of them. As a matter of fact, we have someone in the audience, Dr. Trish, who specializes in helping exactly that uh, audience. Uh, so, Michelle, 
uh, I would ask you to uh, share your story with us and um, the virtual floor is yours. Thank you, Shankar, um, for this invitation to, um, to speak to all of you. Um, yes, I'm a registered nurse, and um, I have a, a kind of a similar story as Dr. Roger. Um, what started out me wanting to be a nurse was that I, one thing that could have been really traumatic for me as five years of age, and I remember this day forever, is that my beloved grandmother had suffered from diabetes, and within two weeks was a bilateral amputee. And I remember this very well at five years of age. And I was asking a lot of questions about her health care. I um, wanted to ask where, you know, could she ever walk again? Why did this happen to grandma? And she died at age 55. So that really started me thinking about wanting to help others in some capacity. I then wrote my first essay on what I wanted to do when I grew up. And that was when I was um, nine years of age. And that was to be a nurse. So I went through um, all of the um, things that those who want to be a nurse do. I was a candy striper. Now they're nursing assistants and nurse externs. And um, I still loved it. I loved the sciences. I loved um, understanding how systems and processes work together. And I then um, went on to um, college at Penn State to get my bachelor's of nursing. And I started immediately out of school working at um, a tertiary care center in Pennsylvania. And I stayed there for 22 years. I was at the bedside for just eight years, but I was very blessed with a lot of mentors and um, those around me and very influential nursing leaders and CEOs and operational influencers that saw something in me um, at a very young age. So I was um, constantly asked to um, look at different positions, be a nurse in different situations. So I was very eclectic. I was a sponge. I did everything from pediatrics to adult ICU to heart transplants to oncology and had a very much background in the extreme acute care in the healthcare um, facility that I worked in. And I was very passionate about making sure, as Shankar is saying, that the systems and processes would um, mesh and that staff engagement and that quality patient outcomes would always be at the highest. And when I finally was getting promoted, I started out as a nurse manager. I then went into um, director level VP, and then um, I did leave Hershey Medical Center um, the tertiary care center that I resided at for 20, 22 years um, to take another role because I kept my sights on wanting to be a chief nursing officer. So another big um, development for me and something I was so passionate about is that I had the chance to be an internal consultant, director of professional nursing practice, leading a teaching hospital in Pennsylvania, over 500 beds to the magnet accreditation. And that is the highest standard that um, any nursing department and organization can attain. Uh, we had to put in processes and systems. We had to make sure that, you know, urinary tract infections were not high, that our employee engagement was high, that our physicians were very happy um, and satisfied to be working among um, all of our departments. It was a team effort. And I'll never forget the day that we got um, contacted 
by the um, ANC about our accreditation being accepted and that it was a hands-down unanimous um, award given to us. Um, that role alone um, really helped me in um, perfecting my skills to move on to be a chief nursing officer because it really was the blueprint of how one should function as a chief nursing officer. And so many of you are talking about access to healthcare. Um, what I was very much involved in with all of my leadership um, responsibilities was down to emergency departments with overcrowding, um, with um, long waits of patients, with um, occupancy levels that were at 86% on hospital units that were in demand. And what we know about an 86% occupancy is that there's no churn. It's all burn. Um, you've got to get the patients in and out, but you still have to show compassion. So with my leadership skills and all the mentoring that I had received, I actually um, worked and had the opportunity to work with the IHI department as well as partnering with the Department of Health and looking at alternative safe places to place our patients when our hospital volumes were skyrocketing. So I created one of the first surge plans for the tertiary medical center. And in that was definitely algorithms and alert systems for everyone and every physician and every healthcare leader to know when and where we were going to put our patients safely, where we going to place them, did we have enough staff, how we brought staff in. And this is when I really felt the power of um, my mentorship and really constantly seeking to be that servant leader that it wasn't really about everything that I did, but what was I able to contribute so that my staff and other leaders had the ability to feel that they were giving excellence and care. So um, the other real definite um, and things that I enjoyed was really looking at quality outcomes, particularly when it came to patients and making sure that our patients were safe and that they did not have um, any iatrogenic um, issues that occurred during their hospital stay. And I did that through a shared governance where, yes, I could facilitate these meetings and these teams, but my staff, my RNs at the bedside, my techs, respiratory therapists, they had to really understand what they could do to improve these outcomes. And so I partnered with schools of nursing to help understand evidence-based practice so that the culture I saw shifting when I was a chief nursing officer of one that was no longer running from me when I made rounds, but actually coming to me and embracing me and talking to me about their quality issues um, as, I, as I led the teams and assisted my leaders in learning these skill sets. And so we did make a lot of progress with that. Unfortunately, um, my entire C-suite at one point had turned over and um, I was the last person standing. And um, it was very interesting because there is a lot of turnover in the chief nursing officer roles and in the CEO roles, and that's very well documented. Um, weekly, we keep getting the Becker reports, I get that in my inbox, um, about the turnover in healthcare and turnover in healthcare leadership. And the staff is also leaving, um, and we do have shortages in all healthcare um, professions. Um, but with that um, came a little bit of a jolt to me of having to um, think about what I wanted to do next. 
And so I actually invested in a career coach because what I wanted to make sure is that I wasn't just running away from something, but I was running towards something exciting. And I worked with a coach that um, really brought out in me my preferred skill sets. And those preferred skill sets and the passion I had was still facilitating teams to greatness and was still empowering staff and individuals. But I wanted to make a more larger impact, not just in one organization, but across the United States. So I went into consulting and I did um, assist uh, Boston Scientific for almost three years of my career in growing cardiovascular programs all across the United States. I had the opportunity to work with some great physicians at Mount Sinai and also a lot of big Texas hospitals in, um, in the um, Dallas-Fort Worth area. And from there, I learned um, more about group facilitation, more about um, you know getting staff involved and engaged, and having staff have that proudness to be part of something bigger than them. I then um, started working in San Antonio for three years. Um, I partnered with um, with Wector Consulting, and I started helping physicians grow their physician practices all across San Antonio. And I really enjoyed this role. At the same time, I was also looking at being an entrepreneur myself. So within the last year and a half, I was successful in bringing to fruition my company called SOAR that is helping um, professional women in healthcare um, rebrand as well as um, re-identify with themselves, know thyself to grow themselves and to actually be the best they can be in any type of career transition, whether it is voluntary or involuntary. And my passion right now is still working as an executive coach with teams as well as individuals. But I want everyone in that um, healthcare leadership group, um, those nurses that want advancement but don't know how to quite get there, I want them to understand that their potential is what they make of it and that I really want them to have those talents that they can tell the world who they really are. So that's a little bit about me. Wow, thank you, Michelle. What I like about your story is the many different perspectives you have had throughout your career. Basically, in a way, you have a, a full circle approach and view and experience. And I love when, when people are bold enough to make a change of careers and I'm the first one to understand how well sometimes skill sets that you have had in a previous career can translate into the next stage of what you're doing. I mean, I am myself before my Im immigration to the United States. I came in 2011, but before that, I was a law enforcement officer for about 10 years I was the equivalent of what you would call an FBI agent here. And I fought human trafficking. I infiltrated drug cartels. I investigated international financial fraud. And I have seen the highs and lows of humanity. But there were so many things, so many skills, so many domain knowledge points that I was able to take and translate into what I'm doing now, which... I, I own a healthcare marketing agency, but I have also recently gotten very passionate about a, a Shanks Academy project where I coach and show 
people how to build their brands and be more visible online. Um, but moving moving on to our next speaker, David Doro, and David is not a clinician, but David has so many talks about healthcare and the challenges with individuals, with families, but also business owners. And he is like no one else, also because David has been a, a business owner himself for so many years, he's like nobody else positioned to be aware of the challenges to overcome uh, the uh, maze of what it means sometimes to navigate healthcare. So, David, I'm especially interested to hear your story. Well, thank you very much. Hello, everyone. And like you said, my name is David. I am a, a native Texan. I am a veteran of the Air Force. I uh, grew up in the 60s and 70s, a uh, blue-collar family. And I grew up in a time when mom picked up the phone, called our family doctor, Dr. Jensen, and told him that I had an earache and he would call in a a prescription and they'd pull up with a little car and come and knock on the front door and deliver our prescription. So I grew up in a time when, when healthcare was all about relationship with physicians. It was all about people that were called to the profession. They weren't in it for the money, at least the people that I had contact with. So then as I grew up, things began to change in healthcare. And by the time I was married in the, in the 70s, and started having children, there was a complete different shift in, in healthcare at, from the consumer perspective, because I have no healthcare background or insurance background at all. So all of a sudden, it, it, it was a shift from it's too expensive and they don't care about me anyway. If you saw a doctor, it was just hit and run. Most of the time, you never actually saw a doctor. Um, and it always cost me money. So all of a sudden, Healthcare wasn't personal. It wasn't there to take care of me and my family, and we dreaded it, and we would put it off. And if we did have an injury or, or someone sick, then my wife had to have the conversation, okay, so where do we come up with the money to go to the emergency room? Where do we come up with the money? And, and it was just, it was a horrible situation to be in, along with knowing that maybe I had to put off paying the electric bill Uh, for a couple weeks and call CPS just to be able to take my child to an emergency room to get stitches that was astronomical. And we're talking 70s and 80s. So over the years, I've had bad experiences with it, and I've had a bad attitude about it. Uh, and so did my wife. We've had very bad experiences. So about five years ago, a friend of mine says, you need to go to this um, lunch and learn. There's a guy named Dr. Machigamba going to be speaking about something brand new and medical. I didn't really want to go. My buddy talked me into it. So I went to the lunch and learn, and I began to listen to what he said about direct primary care. I began to listen to a doctor who cared about people. He was more concerned about a patient being taken care of than becoming wealthy. He was more concerned in taking time with people. And he kept saying direct primary care, direct primary care. I didn't know what that was. I didn't realize that I guess I really grew up with direct primary care, but we just called it family doctor. So it, it began to make my mind to kind of try to absorb what this was. Well, 
you know, I got a hard head, so I had to go to four lunch and learns, uh, four months in a row. And, and then at that point, I went home and told my wife, I think the days of, of the family doctor are back, and they're calling it direct primary care. And so it's a membership program. We didn't, we didn't have insurance. So I thought, well, let's go ahead and join. And I'm not sure that this, that this is real, but we need something. We're getting older. We've got to have health care. So long story short, you know, we joined five years ago. And my wife and I immediately, especially me, experienced what I experienced as a child. I went in uh, for an appointment, blood pressure problems, a lot of issues I was ignoring because of money. And uh, and I was there quite a while, and I was treated like the staff really cared about me. They really cared about my blood pressure. They really took time to ask questions and get to know me and build relationship. And that was my first experience of relationship from a physician in probably 40 years. So that really struck a chord with me. So my wife and I began to go and experience direct primary care for five or six months. And then that's when I actually approached Dr. Roger, because I do have a background in sales and, and stuff like that. I, I quit my job that I was currently working at. I had an online business that I shut down and I asked Dr. Roger basically to go to work for him because for once in my life, I went to work someplace that I believed in and I believed in the direct primary care model and the relationship part of medicine that has come back. And, and I believe that, that this is a great movement across our country where they're bringing back relationship. When you go in to see people, they're not trying to turn and burn. I heard that comment earlier because of insurance carriers. And, and now there's even quotas I've heard about, get them in, get them out, get them in. No, you actually get to go in if you need to and sit down and talk to a physician. What's wrong? What do you need? And you walk out feeling like someone's really trying to take care of me. So I, as a consumer, now working for Dr. Roger for four and a half, five years, um, I believe in what's going on, and I believe that there's a large number of healthcare professionals that care about people, and they care about their health, and I think the movement is, is growing, and we're bringing relationship back to healthcare, and, and I'm excited about it, as you can probably tell, Shankar. Absolutely. Thank you for your share, David. Um, next up, Kelly Pickett. Uh, Kelly, when I listen to you, you are absolutely, without a doubt, always very much feeling into the situation of your clients and hate injustice, hate these money games that we know are definitely possible in healthcare and in health insurance. So, I'm very interested to hear your story, Kelly. Well, thank you, Shankar. It is great to be here. And as he, uh, Shankar said, my name is Kelly Pickett. I am Hardon's wife. So as you can imagine, we are um, partners in all of this. So to go into how my journey started was um, my journey began in the mid-90s, I guess, and I became and worked for a company doing Medicare billing. 
So that was my first introduction into all of this. This is learning the ins and outs of the billing aspect. And then as I worked with the company, um, the model, their model changed and in it, they, you know, wanted to acquire HMO contracts and group benefit contracts. So I moved into the role of contract negotiations. So I had an early view of how the industry was beginning to change and the, I guess, the beginning of what we now have. And just, you know, every contract period, seeing what you had to do in order to be paid the same amount that you were previously paid and how you had to manipulate billing numbers and what you charge people and then having to manage, you know, how that affected people who just didn't have limited funds on the back end. So that's kind of how my journey began. And then as Harnan told you, uh, as he began his journey in insurance, um, we were able to kind of support each other from different angles, I guess you could say, you know, I had my experience and as he was learning how to uh, care for his clients and give them the best that they could uh, have at the time, you know, it was always, well, what happens if they do this or what happens if this situation, you know, comes into play? So that's kind of how our initial interaction developed in and then that's how I learned or began to learn the insurance industry. It's kind of like the outsider looking in, right? Um, and just seeing his struggles. So, and seeing what that looked like and always, you know, knowing you've helped people, but still knowing that you haven't been able to do quite enough to give them what they needed as far as, you know, insurance and healthcare trying to marry the two and as you as we've we've come to find out it is, is there's really no marrying of the two um so that's how i began to learn we began to develop all that um and during his time of and in, in his journey in insurance my role has always been supportive you know it's always been you know you're doing you know just helping research, things like that, being the supportive spouse and um, and just trying to grow and, and just be a part of his development. And then about two years ago, um, I became a full-time partner, right? So I left my normal eight to five job and came on board and began to help in this mission, in this goal. I got my insurance license. I began to help, you know, help our clients. We have a agency. So I took on a co-founding role. So just really got in there, um, did my first open enrollment, which was completely overwhelming, right? And then just really tried to, you know, we began our journey with the Free Market Medical Association and just seeing and and being able to see the possibilities and just 
you know, brainstorming and trying to figure out a better way, knowing they're, knowing it's out there, being able to have access to some more tools that we can just keep implementing and building on and working with our clients and making sure that they understand that there's a better way. And, and for those that weren't ready to make that kind of transition, you know, helping them the best that we could, uh, listening to employers that we work with who want to provide benefits to their employees and the struggle with that, you know, for smaller employers to bigger employers, what that looks like, you know, listening to HR um, people who are working with us and what they are hearing and seeing in their offices. So we really spent a lot of time listening. That's, I, I guess, if I could tell you what we do best is we listen. Um, we listen to what the pain points are. We listen to what you struggle with. We listen to what works. And then we go back to the drawing table and, and really develop. And that's how we develop um, what we do. And so, you know, here I am, I'm, I'm learning all this. It's like a floodgate, right? I'm learning all these things. And let me tell you something that will put insurance and perspective, especially um, like ACA, is not necessarily your first open enrollment, but your second and your third open enrollment are very eye-opening because you see that with each year, the diminish of what people actually have and what they have access to and how easy the system manipulates um, what they're what they're given because you know it's easy for somebody to see as a zero cost you know because who doesn't want to save money and and zeros write the ultimate savings unless somebody's paying you to be on their plan but to see how easy that is for somebody who doesn't know the industry or doesn't know the questions to ask to just hop onto something like that and then be stuck with a plan that doesn't cover anything until they meet an enormous deductible or out-of-pocket max before they even can go to the doctor for free or go to the doctor for a copay. So there are struggles and there are, you know, it, it's, it's an ugly system. But to know that on the flip side of that, where we have developed and taken Harnan's mission to do something better. There's got to be something better out there and develop our Eagle Care solutions, which um, provide smart. It, they're just really smart plans because, again, I'll tell you, we've listened to people and, you know, we've built them to be affordable. We've built them to just be smart and and provide solutions to not just access to healthcare, but things you may not think about, you know, like grounded air ambulance or financial wellness or behavioral health and, and really laying it out on how everything works together holistically. So that's in a nutshell, my journey and my story in, healthcare and how I am 
where I am today. Thank you so much, Kelly. Well, we, we've come to the point where we can uh, accept questions. Um, so your questions uh, can be healthcare related, but also career related, right? So if when, when you come on stage, Uh, tell us uh, for whom your question is and then uh, tell us what you want to know. First person is Charles. Welcome on stage, Charles. Sorry, I was muted there. Shankar, thank you for putting this event together. And um, um, I have a question for the panel. And this this discussion was about how you began your journey in healthcare. And I've, I've got a um, collaboration with the University of Iowa hospitals and clinics. And today in healthcare, as you all know, there is a crisis in staffing. They have so many open positions and physicians, uh, nurses and technicians that um, it puts a huge strain on the system. And there's so many people leaving healthcare because um, the ones that have the passion and show up every day are just asked to continue to go and go and go. And eventually they get burned out and tired. And I, my nephew started University of Iowa Medical School this year, and I went to their White Coast ceremony where the president and all the deans congratulate these 150 new med students that are starting their journey that'll take them down probably 11 years before they start practicing. And there's about 20,000 young people entering medical school every year in the US, um, but we're losing people so much faster than they're coming into the system. So I'd be curious to hear your insights into, you, you shared with us how you got started, but the future of healthcare and how we create a culture and environment where physicians, nurses, and technicians can thrive, take care of people that they're passionate about and not get burned out. Thank you, Charles. At this point, any one of the panelists uh, can unmute. Uh, Roger, I see you. Yeah, I unmuted. Um, so I was, I was getting burned out for a while. And so I, I feel your question, and what turned my passion back on to to what we do in healthcare, taking care of people, is the opportunity to take care of people and focus on them and their needs and have the time to do that instead of um, focusing on, you know, uh, a checklist for billing, you know, and a, a checklist for HEDIS measures or, or whatever it, it might be. You know, so um, I, I think the the key is to is to and I don't know uh, is to for people to be able to focus back on why they got into healthcare. And so, if there's a way that you can create your culture or change your culture to the basics of of delivering care that If you can do that, that would be wonderful, and it would help people to hopefully keep from getting burned out. Now, that being said, we as healthcare professionals are kind of driven for what we do, and we don't mind 
putting in long hours or working really hard, but but there's got to be that that reward of what we did really matters to somebody, you know. So that's just kind of my my input to uh, maybe the the question of burnout or staffing. Yes, uh, Dr. Roger, and I think by becoming a direct primary care physician in a sense, maybe in layman's terms, you become self-employed and you decide to not work with insurance anymore for probably 95% of the things you do. So you take back control of your profession. And um, I think that is a very key, key point. And that's why we see so many healthcare professionals turn to free market principles as a form of healthcare delivery. Is that correct, Dr. Roger? Yes, definitely. I mean, that's, that's an interesting concept of taking control of it. But if you're a, Iowa's the largest teaching hospital in the United States, 17,000 employees, uh, level one trauma centers, so all the bad things that happen around the state show up there. Um, that academic research university delivery system isn't really set up for sole practitioners. But I understand Roger's point that if you could get it so the systems and processes support us so we can spend 95% of our time providing care and not 70% of our time updating charts, going to meetings, um, following up on administrative stuff, that it becomes a lot more enjoyable because you're focused on care and not all the administrative stuff that our litigious society has put into the whole delivery system. Right. So that's that's the trick for you as a CEO or any healthcare administrator or leader is to is to try to balance the administration and the billing and, and all of that um, with the the delivery of care. I mean healthcare professionals, doctors, nurses, uh, we're, we're passionate about what we do. And we, we, we put our blood, sweat, and tears, our hearts into taking care of those people. So if, but if we're not recognized by the system for that, then burnout rate is going to be high, you know, but if, if we're allowed to be recognized for the the good work that we do for for those people, then um, there's there's a chance that we'll last a little longer. <laughs> I'd like to um, comment. Um, we all know the state of nursing, particularly nursing. I mean, I, I it, this hasn't hit to the pandemic hasn't has uh, not left any profession um, unwavered. But um, to speak specifically to nursing. Um, you know, before the pandemic, we as um, hospital leadership um, and in all my executive roles, we were never great at um, having enough staff to care for the patients when we had an influx of patients come in. So that would be like even your regular flu season. And then with the pandemic, that just exacerbated the situation. So you now have even less staff. And um, there's enough evidence out there of evidence-based leadership and evidence-based staffing. And um, my cry to the leaders right now, um, CEOs and chief nursing officers, 
Um, chief nursing officers, if they're astute enough, they know what needs to happen for staffing, but we keep being pulled um, in a direction of having to make budget or having to, um, every nurse is a nurse is a nurse, um, that an ER nurse can go into the ICU and, and take care of patients, and that's, that's not true. Um, there's a certain skill set. But if we could all get together, and I made a cry and a plea for help this week when I looked at all the New York hospitals on strike. Now, granted, they've now settled a contract. But if we could all get together and really talk about the evidence-based of what evidence-based staffing is, um, it's about geography. It's about the geography of a unit. It's about uh, the skill set of your team that you have in front of you today, how many new versus experienced nurses that you have, um, a creative way of how to stop the nurses from leaving your organization and running to go be a traveler um, because you're making four times, five times, six times the amount of what that bedside nurse who's staying committed to that organization is making. And I think that we have enough smart people out there, so we should collectively in systems and even, even across here in San Antonio, I would love to just be part of anything that talks about how to get this back on track. Because what I do right now in my, my career is, in my profession, is that I'm hearing all the nurses who want to rebrand and they want out of the bedside. Leader, leaders are running um, out too. And soon as you know, we're not going to have enough people caring for the patients, nor the team to care for the staff and organizational issues. So there should be answers out there, but I do think we have to go back to basics and really um, put the patient at the front and the staff at the front and make sure that we develop these systems and processes that are going to assist with this healthcare crisis that we're in. That's, that, that's interesting, Michelle. I was talking to... Um... Jerry Clancy, who's the Senior Associate Dean of the University of Hospitals and Clinics about developing AI models that predict staff burnout when they're getting tired. But I think fundamentally, it, it needs to start with um, the patient care and um, how you provide, create an environment where your, your compensation, your work hours, and the support you get is all there. I think with AI, there's so many ways to perform support doctors and nurses. Um, I mean, I'd love to talk to you offline about this in more detail and your, your insights into the nursing world, Michelle, because I think there's technology that can help free up clinicians to do, to do what they love best, but we've got to really define what the low-hanging fruit is and where to start. So if you'd be willing, I'd love to take this offline and have another conversation with you. Yeah, I'd, I'd really love that. Thank you. All right. Well, let's uh, definitely loop me into that. I'm interested as well, Charles. Um, I recognize that we are running over. So if any of the panelists need to leave, I very much understand that. Uh, so feel free to leave. Um, at the same time, I do want to, for those who want to stay, and uh, if there's any other questions in the audience, um, please raise your hand. It can be healthcare-related question or career-related or really anything you've heard today. The other possibility is also we have... Okay, Joy. Question from Joy in the UK. Thank you for joining us, Joy. What's your question? 
Right. Hi, hi, Shankar. Thank you very much for inviting me to this. Um, obviously, listening to everyone speak, I have a, a very different perspective on what healthcare means, and, and it made me feel quite sad as I listened to it, because obviously in the UK, we have a free system, um, although it's kind of creaking at the seams now, because uh, for various reasons, you probably, if you're in the healthcare, you probably know that we are also suffering from too many patients and now not enough resources. So the, the, the freeness in, in the system is debatable, and we're experiencing similar problems to do with lack of resources, uh, ambulances not turning up on time people dying because the ambulances don't turn up um, but we kind of expect that to happen um, and I was also quite surprised that um, you know the difference between the, the two the insurance and, and the other part that you said shank up it was all totally new to me so my heart goes out to everyone but perhaps it's about looking around the world at other systems and seeing how they cope because we too have a problem with nurses leaving um, the profession and getting burnt out and being overworked so it's still a problem even in the UK where we have a, a, a very much so a free service so I just wanted to just share that with everyone because it is it was depressing listening, really, for me, an eye-opener, but quite, quite depressing. Um, if I have a blood pressure problem, I go to my doctor, it gets seen reasonably quickly. Or we are, we are at the moment, complaining about hanging on the phone trying to make an appointment, but we know we will get an appointment. So it's a very different uh, picture to knowing that you can't afford to pay for the care which is why people are probably dying. And it made me think about mental health care, which I'm very passionate about. And I can see that's an even bigger problem. You know, you don't access the people that you need to see, therefore you don't get the medication, therefore and problems just get worse. So I just wanted to throw that out there, Shankar. So thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, Joy. It uh, makes us proud Americans feel a little better when someone... Uh, tells us every now and then that they don't have the, the silver bullet either. But <laughs> do any of our uh, panelists want to react to uh, Joy's contribution? So, um, thank you, Joy. I'd like to say that I think that it begins with, with talking. I do know that there has to be action involved, but I think that as as a group and in our individual uh, professions, that if we continue to bring this to the forefront, and it may not be you that comes up with a solution, but because you have put it out there and people are listening, that there, we will learn to develop a better way. Um, you know, mental wellness and mental awareness I mean, look at where it was 10 years ago. Look at where it was five years ago. And then, but today it's, it's a common word. It's, it's, it's losing its stigma. Um, and it's being incorporated into things. It's being incorporated into, into benefits. You know, that's one of the things when we built, um, began to build the equal care plans that we made sure it was, part of the structure and it was accessible. So I think that just talking about it and, and getting into groups, um, like Michelle had mentioned is, you know, 
learning to to get into groups and and bring the discussion to the forefront. I think that 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 is not the one solution, but I think that that adds to the development of a solution. Thank you, Kelly. Again, I recognize that uh, we are over time, so if people need to leave, please feel free to do that. Um, is there any other question from the audience? I'd also be really interested from our participants who are from countries like Pakistan, Bangladesh, India. Do you all relate to these worries that we addressed here at all? Uh, is that something that you can relate to or is this like, this is crazy that you have to worry about it because we here in our countries have absolutely no problem with access to affordable, good healthcare. I'd be really curious if anyone wants to contribute in that sense. If not... I'll just play a little bit of music here for one or two minutes. Um, actually, before I do that, I want to invite our panelists to leave us with a final thought, uh, kind of a wrap-up of the conversation for them today. Uh, if there's anything you would like to say as a closing statement, please unmute yourselves. Dr. Roger? Hi, uh, thank you again, Shankar, for pulling this group together and letting us uh, talk about um, uh, alternative access to affordable health care. And um, so thank you to uh, my fellow panelists and to you, Shankar, and everyone that's participated. Thank you, Dr. Roger. And I know you're always more than happy to have a conversation about healthcare delivery. So definitely. Uh, don't be shy, uh, connect with Dr. Roger, click his face, follow him and message him uh, if you think he can help you uh, beyond this conversation. Harlan? Yeah, my final thought is that everyone that's listening right now and those of you that are your contacts, uh, it, and of course, I'm, I'm, very, I'm talking very specifically about the folks here in the States, it is our responsibility to educate folks about what's going on and what the other options are, that they don't have to be locked into one of the traditional health insurance plans that truly do not provide them access. And it, it's a tough, uh, you know, it, it's a saying in Texas, folks, so it's a tough road to hoe to go through that and, and find those folks out there. And there's so many people that have all their lives been brainwashed into believing that you have to have health insurance to get Access, accessibility to healthcare. That it's a tough deal for us to do, but it is our responsibility. If we want to make change, we have to be the change to begin with, and that is uh, that's what we've got to all be about. Is we've got to be about that change to help people really understand uh, this revolution that is well overdue. Thank you, Harlan. A hundred percent agree, and. That is precisely why we will keep this speaker series going. Uh, today was the first uh, iteration, but we'll do one every uh, Thursday of the week at 1 p.m. Central Time, Texas Time. Uh, this conversation here today was also recorded, so if you want a recording to share it in other places, reach out to me, let me know, uh, so that we can bring this information to more people. 
Any other final thoughts for today by one of the panelists or even the audience? Okay, so what I will do is I will play a little bit of music for a few minutes to give you time to uh, follow each other, click each other's uh, icon uh, profile and follow and make sure you, you make connections and then you can continue having the conversation with the people that resonated with you. I want to again thank you uh, all so very much, uh, dear panelists, for taking your precious time to be here today. Thank you also to the audience, Shirley, Arpit, Gina, Kelly, Andrea, Michelle, uh, I'm sorry, Michael, <laughs> sorry, Michael, Michael, uh, Irfan, Jeffrey, and Amar. <laughs>